CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. time on the Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Friday, December 3rd, 2021. And here's a headline in today's New York Times. It's, oh, it's going to be a topic, one of the topics of conversation uh, today with my distinguished guest. Uh, seismic shift looms in fight over abortion. And the, uh, the lead is with the Supreme Court now looking likely to weaken or overturn the landmark Roe versus Wade decision on abortion. Activists in both political parties are bracing for a new battle over one of the country's longest-running cultural divides. Yes, it's going to get really nasty and political, and that's what we have to look forward to. Uh, that and much, much more with my distinguished guest, who I will now ask to introduce himself so we can take the deep dive and take it from there. So distinguished guest, go ahead. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be back on the show. I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. <laughs> um, and uh, and I'm a frequent guest on this show, and I'm uh, eager to dive into the latest nightmare that we have been plunged into. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, uh, every, it seems like uh, uh, David comes on the show every other week, uh, and we talk about the state of affairs politically, and it seems like the nightmare gets worse and worse. Uh, with each passing week, because largely the Dems never listen uh, to David Ferris or me, uh, and they just keep doing the same old thing. And let's see where it gets us. All right, uh, I have, we have three general topics for today. One is the politics of Roe uh, in abortion and how that's going to be playing out uh, with uh, the Supreme Court very likely to overturn Roe. Uh, the other one is has to do with my obsession, which I passed on to David, and he dutifully uh, took it up, and that is Ryan Murphy's impeachment, the 10-part series about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, which is I just think is so fascinating and insightful and uh, relevant for today. Uh, and, um, oh, my God, the variant. <laughs> I'm not leaving this attic. I'm not leaving this. So... Where do we start? Why don't we start with um, with Roe uh, and the politics of abortion uh, in America? It's it's very strange. Uh, this is a 
this is an issue, uh, David, that the Democrats think, oh, we can make hay out of this, uh, politically speaking. I'm not even sure if that's true. We'll get into that. But it just seems like such a scary way to make hay out of something so significant and important and dire to the health needs of women in this country. Uh, all right, this is our advantage. Let's go for it. Uh, right. I, oh, whoa. <laughs> anyway, uh, your general thoughts on this. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. I agree with you. Um, I think that the last 10 years have provided abundant examples of, I think, liberals and people on the left thinking like, They've finally gone too far. You know, that's that's the crazy thing. And that's going to turn the tide and people are going to come over to our side. Um, and it just hasn't happened. It's the same logic that I think a lot of people greeted Donald Trump's nomination by saying, wow, we're going to win by 15 points. I mean, nobody nobody could possibly vote for this guy. Right. Um, and and there have been people on the left, mostly men for many years who've been saying. They'll never overturn Roe. You know what I mean? It's like that if they need it too much to mobilize their base. Um, it'll be like the dog catching the car, right? And I'm like, the dog wants to catch the car, you know? What? Why does? I don't even understand this metaphor. Like, when the dog catches the car, he's like, awesome. I've got the car. I'm going to pee on it. Do whatever. You know, the dog will be very happy when the dog catches the car. That's why the dog is chasing the car. Okay. So, anyway, this has been a this is like a 45 year long plot to to take over the Supreme Court and overturn Roe v. Wade. The idea that they would get there, that they would get their six conservative justices on the court, and then stop just short of doing it. Um, has always been pretty absurd. And um, while I, I'm, I don't know how this is going to play out politically and nobody does, um, I think that we've seen enough examples in the last 10 years in particular of Democrats failing to use or exploit judicial politics um, to get their own voters out that uh, somebody's going to have to show me how it would work, you know, um, especially because abortion is likely to remain legal in 23, 24 states or something where, where, you know, most of the blue checkmark activists live. Um, I think it's going to be a, a tougher sell because a lot of liberals are actually not going to feel this decision. Right? Um, now there's tens of millions of, of Democrats in, in Texas and, and some of these red states that are, that are probably going to um, make abortion illegal after this decision comes down in June, if they haven't already. Um, and, and of course, the, those, those people might be outraged and, and mobilized. But my fear is that, a, is that a decision that does not touch the everyday lives of enough people um, is not going to be sufficiently motivating um, to, to overcome all of the other obstacles that we face next year, um, from structural obstacles to just like, we're not doing a very good job governing right now. Um, and so I, I, you know, I hope the people that are like, that it'll be great for Democrats are right because the women are going to lose their rights either way um, in, in all of these states. And it, it would be nice, at least, um, if there was a backlash um, and we could, we could gain some extra power to, to do something about this. But um, I, I'm not, I, you know, I just don't have a lot of confidence that that's really going to happen. And I would be lying to you if I said that it, that it was. Well, I, w I would say the early evidence, uh, the Virginia gubernatorial, is that it was not an uh, impact player of this issue in that election. And uh, so the, the Texas law, uh, which essentially outlaws abortion in the state of Texas, it goes even further than the Mississippi law, which is the one that the Supremes are considering right now. Uh, the, te the, the Texas law, which we talked about so many times in the show, was very much a law, very much an issue, very much in the news. Uh, when Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, was running against Glenn Youngkin, and McAuliffe tried to use Texas as an issue, 
with the idea being this is what's going to be the, the key to flipping those swing voters in the suburbs that Democrats care so much about. And it didn't flip the swing voters uh, in Virginia. That's my sense of it. Is that your sense of it, too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's in, in one sense, it's, you know, you're expecting a backlash about something that that hasn't happened yet in Virginia. Right. Um, or a, a backlash about a, a Supreme Court decision. Again, that hasn't actually happened yet. Right. So we can look at the landscape today um, and say, yes, the Supreme Court declined to to enjoin the Texas law. Right. They let it they let it stand. And it's that's the law in Texas right now. And it's very, very difficult to obtain an abortion and abortion rates have, have plummeted there. Um, but for, you know, for most of the people in the rest of the country, they haven't been touched by this yet. Um, people in Virginia haven't been touched by this yet. And so it is a little bit odd to expect the voters of Virginia to prioritize a thing that has not happened to them yet and which their leaders are not doing a very good job of warning them about, right? Um, that if, you know, Republicans captured the, the governorship and the, and the state legislature in Virginia, they're going to make abortion illegal there too. Hello. Right. And in a state Joe Biden won by 10 points. So you're always one crappy election away from 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 abortion being illegal in your state too it may that might be true in illinois right because it's almost impossible to imagine democrats losing the uh the state house and the state senate here but um a lot of states that are not as as landslidey as as illinois it could happen right it could happen in new hampshire could happen in virginia um could happen in, in minnesota some of these states that are democratic leaning but not not overwhelmingly democratic um this this could come to them but we we certainly didn't see a backlash to this abortion escalation that we see from the right in Virginia, and I think more broadly speaking, I mean Republicans have been passing, you know, t uh, thousands of restrictions on on abortion in the states for decades, um, and there has not been a, an, a there's not been a consistent counter mobilization, um, and I, I don't know I don't know how to explain that exactly except that again. It reminds me of the politics around like um, universal daycare and uh, policies for people with young children in the sense that it's like, yes, you may intersect with this thing at some point in your life, but most people are not dealing with that right now. Um, and so it's it's hard to mobilize a broad coalition around something that is, in, in many cases, for most people at this moment in their lives, an abstraction, you know? Um, when, when, when you raise taxes on people that hits you on the next paycheck, right? Um, and when you pass other sorts of laws that, that change people's lives in, in negative ways, um, they're, they're going to feel that immediately and, and, and they may come out to vote in a, in a significant backlash. Um, what remains to be seen is the kind of spectacle that is going to follow what the Supreme Court is about to do. I think, um, I'm, I'm not one of these like court watchers who can like watch a justice, listen to a justice talk and, and, and tell you exactly how they're going to vote six months from now. <laughs> okay. That's not what I do, but I read those people. Um, and, and they seem pretty convinced that, that there are five votes to overturn Roe, um, that justice, uh, chief justice, John Roberts is trying to get them to come to some sort of compromise that would essentially make it possible to pass the Mississippi ban 15 weeks or 12 weeks or something, but not, but not overturn Roe, um, and not allow the Texas law to stand which is effectively a ban on all abortions. Um, and it just doesn't seem like he has anybody who's gonna come over with him. It seems like the other five conservative justices on the court, um, Thomas and Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett are all gonna vote to overturn Roe. And I don't know what, I don't know what Roberts is gonna do if he knows he's gonna lose, he might just join that decision anyway and just make it 6-3.
Um, and that is going to be a really, really disruptive and disjunctive event in American politics. That, that much I agree about. It's going to be just a complete circus. Um, you know, there's going to be dozens of states immediately where abortion is, is effectively illegal overnight. Um, this is a decision that very much is in contradiction to, to the sort of broad public opinion about this issue, um, which is pretty, you know, which is which is complicated and a little bit more nuanced than I think um, people on either side want, want to acknowledge. Um, but there is a clear majority for Roe. There's a clear majority for the idea of abortion being legal under certain circumstances. There is not a majority for, uh, you know, for, for legalized abortion up to, you know, the, the day before birth. There's not a, there's not a majority, nowhere near a majority to, to outlaw abortion in all circumstances. So what the Supreme Court is doing is it is effectively greenlighting uh, 24, 25, 26 states um, to, to pass laws that, that really have, you know, 20, 25% support nationally. Um, and so uh, um, that's, it's, it's a tragedy first and foremost, what's happening right now. Um, and, uh, you know, the bigger question in my mind is like, well, what, are, what, what, are, what, are, what is the party that pro-choice people have been giving their votes to for 40 years going to do about this? You know, um, and, and I don't see a clear plan from the leadership about what, what they can do. I, to me, there's only one thing that can stop this train from, from going off the tracks. And that's, that's if Manchin and Cinema came out and were like, yeah, we're going to pack the courts if you do this. Otherwise, I don't think that, I, I don't think there's anything that's going to stop these these conservatives from, from overturning Roe. Um, anything less than a credible threat that like, yeah, you can do it, but it, we're just going to reverse it right back four weeks later because we're, we're going to add four justices to the court. Um, and um, and I, we've been watching these two. Uh, by the way, I just want to say, I think we waited 12 minutes into the episode today without mentioning this anyway. Um, and, um, <laughs> That's I, I just, I <laughs> they don't seem to have a fight in them, so I don't. I don't really see that happening. But I mean, I've been, I've been surprised before. But um, if if the Democrats want this to be a mobilizing issue in the midterms, um, they need to tell their voters what they're going to do about it. Right? Enough of this. Like, oh, I stand with Roe. You know, we're going to tweet about it, and we're going to launch a committee hearing, and we're going to challenge the. We're going to launch another lawsuit against the lawsuit that the Supreme Court upheld. Like, give me a break. You know, what I mean? like what what is the what is the party's plan? to protect reproductive rights in this country. Give it to me in three minutes or less, you know, tell me what you're going to do and then tell the voters what you're going to do. If you, if you give us larger majorities, if you can't do that, I have a hard time seeing um, how, how people are going to get mobilized around this issue. Uh, this, where we're going now in the conversation will directly tie into our Clinton conversation. Uh, I can see it coming already, but to your point about mobilizing your voters around judicial ma matters, uh, you've been saying for a long time what the Democrats have to do. And you're not the only one. Lefties and activists have been saying the same thing. They were enraged when um, <clears throat> McConnell pulled a stunt he did after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and immediately held uh, hearings to cramp, ram through uh, a new nominee that turned out to be Amy Cody Barrett uh, before the election. Uh, completely violating what he said, the principles governing the process for Merrick Garland when Obama uh, was uh, president. When he did that, activists said, let's pack the court. I, I said it. I read it from other activists, lefties. Everybody said, let's pack the court. And what did the Democrats do? Here's a rallying cry for their base. This is like you got people ready to go to the barricades on this issue. They're fired up. And what did they do? 
they ran away. Oh, no, at the debates. We're not for packing the courts. There's, there, it's so bizarre, the behavior of Democrats in this game. And I, I'll get to Clinton because it goes back to that Clinton strategy of the 90s, which is such a fallacy. The guy didn't win a majority of the vote. He won a plurality. <clears throat> and so he... <laughs> He thinks as though he came up with a winning strategy and all he did was betray the interests and the values of his core supporters. And all the Republicans do is reinforce the attitudes and the values of their core supporters and then just keep pushing the country to the, to the right. And I'm with you, David. I don't know how the Democrats can turn this in to a rallying, effective rallying cry, if they're already abandoning packing the court because they're afraid, what? They're afraid of criticism from Fox TV uh, or swing voters? I truly do not. Help me understand the worldview of Democrats uh, in, this, in this game. Well, I think there's two things going on with court packing. One is they don't like the polling on it which is not great, but who cares, right? Um, <laughs> so just do it. Um, and the second thing is they, um, they like, because I, I talk to liberals all the time who are like squeamish about this, you know, and you, you scratch under the surface and you're like, what is your problem with this? And they're like, well, yeah, that'll undermine the judiciary, you know? And I'm like, I don't really want to undermine the judiciary. I just kind of want to destroy the Supreme Court. So uh, are we in agreement about that or not? Um, and, uh, and so I think there's a lot of liberals who are who just have this like built in faith in the judiciary itself as like a as like a positive intervening institution that's critical to democracy. And they don't want to be seen as the people that that um, that really play like hardball, you know, bare knuckle judicial politics with it, even though it's already being done to us, which I think is crazy. Um, the, the The broader issue here to me and the reason we've not been able to mobilize people around the courts and this goes back to Clinton. Um, but I think it goes further back than Clinton, is that Democrats have almost an entirely negative defensive agenda when it comes to the Supreme Court. It's it's 97% about protecting Roe v. Wade that in the in the popular discourse. Um, the other the other 3%, it's like 2% Citizens United, which no, literally no one cares about anymore. Um, and then 1%, maybe like we could roll back some of the expansions of gun rights. And there's no vision um, of, of what the left thinks, um, the, 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 what, what the judicial philosophy of the left is, right? The, the right has a judicial philosophy. I think it's bananas, but, but it's, but it's, but it makes sense on its own terms, right? It's originalism. You know, you take the plain meaning of the constitution and you apply it. Uh, we're not finding penumbras. We're not, we're not discovering new rights that are not plainly written out in the constitution. If you want new rights, amend the constitution. Good night and good luck. Um, and, there should be a judicial philosophy on the left. Um, it's uh, there's a, there's an organization that's like the the sad um, you know the sad farm team of the of the of the Federalist Society. It's called the American Constitution Society, um, and their their philosophy is 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 called living constitutionalism. Okay. Um, that is uh, an idea that if if we treat the the literal word of the Constitution. As, as unchangeable, and you acknowledge that a lot of these things cannot happen in our, our current legislative environment, you're, you're allowing the Constitution to be a straitjacket um, that, that doesn't allow us to address 
many of society's pressing needs. And so we can't address these problems because a, because a slaveholder decided that we weren't going to address these problems when they wrote this thing over candlelight, you know, 240 years ago. Um, and, and, and living constitutionalism is a, is a doctrine that says, look, um, yes, you know, you, you may not find a right to, to e you know, equal financing of public education in the constitution literally spelled out like that. Um, but here is a huge social problem. You can see it, right? Schools are, 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 are funded much better in some places than in others. Um, if you elect us, I will appoint judges who will interpret the constitution to meet the needs of today's living human beings that are with us right now who need our help. Um, one of the things that we will do is we will, you know, we will find a right to, to equal funding for public education. Another thing that we will do, you know, and just go down the list, like what is it, what can the left get out of a, a Supreme Court that's friendly to them, you know? Um, and right now the story is like, you get what you already have, God bless, maybe we'll uh, overturn this law about campaign finance that you, <laughs> that you don't care about and actually probably benefits us at this point anyway. Um, and, uh, what else? Maybe we'll do something about guns, but we're probably too cowardly to do that anyway. So we we'll probably won't do that. Um, other than that, what, you know, what's in it for, what is in it? Honestly, what is in it for people, um, on the left to go out and motivate themselves to, 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 um, to put a friendly Supreme court into place, um, a, when they, when their leadership is not fighting for it anyway, and B, their leadership is not spelling out any kind of principles, coherent connections between the different, uh, um, issues that come before the court, um, uh, promises of things that might get better rather than avoiding things that might get worse. Um, all of that, I think, plays into the reason that the right has such a, such a huge advantage in the court wars. Um, because a coherent philosophy allows you to motivate your base. A base will turn out for every single election, right? Um, and contrary to popular belief, when you deliver things to the base, they, they, they don't just go like, oh, thanks. Okay, well, that's, that was my live stream. Bye. I'm never going to turn out again. <laughs> yeah. Like they're... <laughs> They're activated, you know. Yeah. Um, the people that are activated are are with us, right? They're sticking with politics, um, and so anyway, um, I, I I just think it's um, it's such another missed opportunity in terms of messaging and strategy for Democrats um, because they um, it's just they're 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 fighting these court wars on a really ad hoc basis, and it is very ineffective. Um, and I and I hope that people are starting to see that. I will admit. Living constitutionalism is harder to explain <laughs> than originalism. Yeah, but it is just coherent a philosophy, right? and and it's like you just have to do the work. I mean, your average your average knucklehead at a Trump rally can't explain originalism to you, right? But he could explain sort of like what what you know what are we going to do vis-a-vis um, -vis the Constitution if this guy wins, right? and that's what we need our base to be able to do too, and we, we haven't done. Yeah, that. well, I. Uh... I would say that uh, if I had to boil it down, uh, uh, what the rulings that they want, uh, the areas you've already said for the right would be abortion, which is uh, er eradicating it in this country, um, outlawing it, uh, and guns, which is the exact opposite, uh, permitting it, uh, and then um, then they become then it's the political uh, issues that vary. So for instance, striking down laws that would mandate masks or striking down laws that would, uh, mandate vaccines. It would do, they just, I mean, they're just political tools. I, I keep saying this, uh, David, they, these the, the Supreme court justices, and we'll get now, this is a perfect transition. Brett Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, who is now the swing vote on abortion. If you read the uh, newspapers, I just shake my head in disbelief. Brett Kavanaugh, 
uh, is a Supreme Court justice, Brett Kavanaugh. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're too lazy to watch uh, Ryan Murphy's impeachment or even read a book about uh, the Bill Clinton uh, impeachment uh, fiasco and Kenneth Starr, he was Kenneth Starr's hatchet man. He's a Republican political operative who is now in the Supreme Court and acts like a political operative, but uses the tools of his rulings. And that's all he is. To pretend like this is a great constitutional scholar and a thinker and an objective jurist is to fool yourself, ladies and gentlemen. He's a political operative. And this is what this is his life's work. And, I, in, in, and in an impeachment, the Ryan Murphy documentary, he took that little segment that's This is what Ryan Murphy is really good at when he takes these historical events and he takes little elements from the past to update them. He did this with the OJ thing where out of nowhere, the Kardashian girls, he's put them in there and it's just like brilliant. This guy, he sees, uh, he sees things that will happen as a result of these historical events. But Brett Kavanaugh is now in the Supreme Court and he was the one pushing Ken Starr to go harder on Clinton put more of the sleaze in the uh, Star Report so people know exactly what a sleazy guy Clinton is. So I don't know. um, You you know what I'm saying, David? Like, who are we kidding? Uh, And why Democrats are so afraid, just so afraid to call it out and tell it like it is. I I, I just, I don't know. It's just, it's so frustrating. Uh, It seems like you and I have been having the same conversation since I read your book five years ago. All right, let's... (laughs) Sorry about that. I just had to get that ran out of my system. Let's talk about uh, the lessons that you've picked up uh, from watching the history of the the Clinton impeachment, uh, which, by the way, folks, it's very entertaining. It's a way to eat your vegetables without realizing you're eating your vegetables. Uh, it's nourishing and you learn stuff, you know, and it's fun to watch. But uh, what were some of the takeaways you had from it? I mean, a few different things. I mean, let, I mean let's start with Kavanaugh because we're because we're on it. Right. Um, and. You know, I I I knew I listened to the Slow Burn podcast about the impeachment a couple of years ago, so I I knew that he was involved. I knew he was on Ken Starr's team, but I don't think I realized that that he was like the, you know, essentially the attack dog, uh, pushing for for the for the report to be, um, to have all of the sex acts and stuff in it, you know, and the cigar, and it, it, this was like he was obviously just like delighted for it. And I said when they with the first scene with Brett Kavanaugh in it, I didn't say his name or anything, but you know, there was just this little like trash goblin looking person. Um, who, you know, fit the age profile. And I was like, Kavanaugh, that's definitely Kavanaugh right there. Um, and it's one thing, it was a, it was a reminder to me um, that even though our political memories are like three seconds long, um, there are these like decades long, generations long, generations spanning um, connections between political events uh, in which people are politically socialized um, and develop resentments and grievances that come out a long time later. And I was thinking about when I was watching that, the, the one or, there was only one or two episodes with Kavanaugh in them. But one of the things that I kept coming back to over and over again um, was his testimony when he was, um, when he, during his confirmation hearings uh, almost three years ago now. Um, and he's, you know, he went on that, you know, he went on that rant that Matt Damon made fun of on SLL, so wonderful. And he said, I don't know what's going on here. Maybe it's revenge on behalf of the Clintons. Remember yes. that? It's revenge yes. on behalf of the Clintons. What goes around comes around. Um, and so since that day, I've been calling him justice. What goes around comes around. Um, and it's just, been, it's been obvious 
that it, it, he is a political operative. I mean, he's, you know, he's trained in the law. He can dress it up in the, in the appropriate language. But there's, there's no question that's going to come before the court that has anything to do with Republican political power, with abortion, any of this stuff, um, where he's going to do anything other than exactly what the, the right wing um, legal and, and political movement wants him to do. That's who he is, right? Um, and he was, he was like a, he's like a little, like a baby-faced creature that was formed um, in, the, in the fires of this effort to, um, to destroy Bill Clinton. Um, and, and I just thought just, so many people from that show that are still in our political lives never, have never paid a single price for, for any of the things that they've done. I mean, you might as well have Ann Coulter as the swing vote on the Supreme Court. And I mean, they, they were all friends together. Um, well, that was, that was really, it was a reminder. It's like, yeah, you think the nineties were a long time ago and my students re now do refer to it as the late, um, the late 1900s, but, um, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny. The late 1900s, I'm like, yeah, oh my God, please. You're making me feel so old. I mean, it was a long time ago, but it wasn't, you know? Um, and so, uh, it's like some of those people are, I mean, Ken Starr's still floating around. I mean, these people are all still part of the right wing attack apparatus. And they just recalibrate every few years to go after the next the next people, and, and it's really maddening. Um, the other thing is really, um, I kept I keep thinking of this alternate history where Bill Clinton does resign, um, and and you watch the full scope of the show, and um, you know, in a in a narrow sense, like yes, this was a this was a consensual relationship between two you know two legal adults, but and you know, in a in a moral sense, right? You have this like twenty year old intern works for bill clinton and he is uh he's like a he's he's a he was a predator you know i mean he he, he isolated this young woman um who clearly didn't have any friends in, in dc besides this older woman that went <laughs> that exploited her and destroyed her life um and he took this like lonely isolated young person and 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 he got what he wanted from her and and then he moved on and he was resentful that he ever had to pay the price for it um and no matter, it doesn't matter whether Ken Starr was an inquisitor and he was, he was a maniac, he's like a religious fanatic. But the reality is that Bill Clinton lied to a, a grand jury, right? You saw it happen in the show. He lied to a federal grand jury. He lied about this to the American people. Um, he abused his power uh, in his relationship with, with Monica Lewinsky, whose life he, he, he permanently um, destroyed. You know, I, I mean, she, she's... <laughs> She has a life, right? She's alive and she's on Twitter and, and she actually seems rather happy. But I think that she went through like 10 years of absolute hell. Um, and and, and he, he should have resigned. He should have resigned his office. Um, you know, even if there was a, a vast right wing conspiracy, as, 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 uh, as Hillary said, Hillary Clinton said on, on TV in, in 98, um, it doesn't matter if there's if, if there's a conspiracy and you're actually doing the thing. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like if the conspirators are right you know, and you are abusing your power and you are abusing your office, um, then maybe it's time to go. Uh, I, I just think about how different the 2000 election could have been if Al Gore was already president. Um, and, and instead of having to walk this dance between, um, well, Clinton's still popular, but I have to distance himself from myself from him to a certain extent, which never really worked for him. So um, those, those are a couple of takeaways. I think the show really humanizes Monica Lewinsky in particular. I mean, if you've never, if you're, if you're someone who hasn't thought about the Clinton impeachment in a long time, maybe even since it happened, and all you remember about Monica Lewinsky is like the, you know, the military hat at the parade where she hugs Bill Clinton and, um, and, the, and the star report. Um, this is a show, even more so than that slow burn podcast. Um, this is a show that will really make you think about what was done to her. Um, 
and how all these powerful people were pursuing their agendas through her, essentially. You know, Bill Clinton is using her. Um, these right-wing lawyers are using her. Um, Linda Tripp was using her. Uh, everybody's using this person. Um, and she really comes out as this, like, tragic figure. I mean, I, there was a few episodes I was watching, and I was like, I wonder how Monica feels about her depiction here. <laughs> well, she was a producer uh, of the show, so she... I know, I know, yeah. yeah. She must have liked it. Um, but, I mean, you know, she's portrayed as, a, a like, a, a young girl, right? Like, with um, somebody who's still maturing and... Um, I, I don't know how you're supposed to react when you're having an affair with the president. You know, I mean, like what, what, what were we expecting? Um, so I anyway. actually wouldn't but, call it an affair with the, I, I've been thinking about this, the language. I just wrote a column about this. So it's on my mind. Uh, it, I can't even call it an affair. You know, an affair. I, um, I don't know. Affair just sort of implies that like there were moments together that, you know, uh, were like treasured moments. I don't know. I I just, affair implies more seriousness. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, hey, come here. Close the door, okay? I'm going to be on the phone. Service me while I'm on the phone. I mean, it's just really depraved, whacked out stuff that the president was doing. Uh, You're right. And, uh, (laughs) uh, And you're also right about Clinton. Uh, At one point, you sent me a text and um, I'm doing this off memory because I don't have my phone right in front of me. Uh, but I think he said episode seven really shows what a sleaze Clinton is. I'm paraphrasing. And, I, and I'm like, it's been a while since I watched the show, so I couldn't remember exactly what episode seven was. So which, what, do, you, do you remember what you were uh, alluding to when you said that? Like what particular actions he was doing that was so in, beyond typical Clinton sleaziness? I, I think it was like the, um, when he launched this organized effort to lie about it, right, which which really left Lewinsky in a lurch. You know, he like, he shuts, to, it's like, it start, the, the scandal starts to break and he kind of cuts her out. Um, and she's in, in some kind of weird legal jeopardy too. And then he goes on national TV and, and, and denies the allegations. Um, and that that moment was really striking to me because it's like you know that she's going to have to go testify, right, um, about what happened here. And then you go and tonight you lie on national television, and it, and he was like, well, I never asked her to lie for me. And it's like, well, yeah, of course you did. You know, like you made this claim that it never happened. Did, what do you think this twenty one year old is going to go to the FBI and contradict you? You're the president. Um, and so uh, just the way that he, you know, would you know, invite her back to the office and like sweeten her up when, when he thought that she might talk. And, um, I don't know, it was just, it, it just, it was gross. You know, um, if I, if I have one complaint about the show, Ben, it, it, it's actually, it was the, it was the Clintons themselves. Like, like Clive Owen is so the British actor, Clive Owen is a wonderful actor, um, is playing, he's doing this impersonation of Clinton, which is a, it's a good impersonation, but I feel like he was so wrapped up in getting the voice right. Um, and like, I guess, walking around with the, with the nose that they had to put, had to put on him, <laughs> yeah. um, that you lost a sense. This is what I will say about Bill Clinton. I, I didn't like the, the Bill Clinton that portrayed in this show is not charming at all. Yeah. Um, and, and one thing you really, you gotta hand Bill Clinton is like, he, he was very charming. Um, and that sort of like happy go lucky that, Hey boys, you know, like yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> um, 
didn't really come through in the show to me. And and um, and the and the portrayal. Edie Falco is a wonderful actress, also who plays Hillary Clinton, and she doesn't really show up until like the sixth or seventh episode. Uh, they're just like she's like sleeping in bed a couple times, and you're like, when when are we going to see Hillary? And then she, <laughs> yeah, she's just the character from The Sopranos, you know. She's <laughs> so uh, it was just it was it was odd to me that that Clive Owen was trying to do such a precise imitation of, of Bill Clinton, and and um, and Edie Falco was just like, just give me the hair, and people can just like use their imaginations from there. <laughs> like dress me up this way, but I'm not going to try to do the voice, you know. Um, but um, it was a it was a, it was a portrayal of them that I think didn't lend a lot of insight into why they were pop you know why at least Bill Clinton was popular at the time um, you know for 60 65 percent approval ratings um, and you know he, he's he's correctly portrayed as a predator in this situation but I don't know that they really do a good enough job of like giving you the political context well, for why I'll, I'll, why people I'll, didn't I'll, about this. let's uh, let's go into that because. Uh, this is one of my theories of the day. By the way, and before I get into that, I just want to say this. Uh, I, I, we talk about movies all the time in this show, and one of my pet peeves is uh, how British actors are routinely cast to play Americans. Uh, and I watch them struggle with that accent, and they're considered, oh, what a great actor. I'm like, the dude is like, you can see his brain working on not screwing up and having the British accent. And uh, you're absolutely right about Clive Owen, 100%. Idris Elba, as much as I love him, is the same. I just saw him in a Western. He's a Brit, and he's in a Western. And I, every movie Idris Elba's in, I see that brain going, don't have the British accent. And it's the same with Clive <laughs> Owen. This just infatuation that America, Hollywood has with British actors, I won't get. All right. Um, I talked about this in a column I wrote, The Culpability of Democrats. Uh, in the Bill Clinton scandal. Uh, and I believe they're culpable, and I believe we're still paying the price. I believe uh, that that was on full display in 2016 when uh, after Donald Trump was caught on tape saying, I grabbed him by the pussy, he immediately brought out all the, the women who had accused Bill Clinton of sexual harassment and abuse down through the years, including one accusation of rape. Uh, and And I just completely undercut the argument that somehow or other Donald Trump was an abomination that could not be tolerated when the Democrats had tolerated an abomination on the part of Bill Clinton and cheered him on. And it's it's part of parcel of the same general theme we've been talking about. If you don't stand for anything, David, if you just tailor your political needs to whatever is the issue in front of you today without taking like a, a principled stand, then you stand for nothing. And that to me is what the Democrats, that's how I view the Democrats. I loyally vote Democrat because I cannot stand the Republican Party. More, it's almost like a hater thing more than anything else. But that's yeah, negative partisanship. I, I mean, that's, you know. <laughs> so 65% uh, of the polls, yeah, people were like, oh, Everybody plays around. What's the big deal? That was that was kind of like this is the constitutional issue. This thing is hinging. Everybody plays around, but uh, they all knew Clinton was a sleaze. We all know that he was slick, Willie. We all bought into it because we loved how he enabled to like nimbly outfox the Republicans at their own game, and they would be so mad, and they would just be like, "We gotta get him." 
And the fact that like the Ann Coulters and the George Conways and the Ken Stars and the Brett Kavanaugh wanted to get him so bad they couldn't get him. You were like, yeah, that's our guy. Meanwhile, he's selling us out on everything like welfare, NAFTA, uh, criminal justice. You get what I'm saying? So we're culpable. We created this creature. Go ahead. I, I mean, I was struck. The, um, the show introduces uh, Juanita Broderick toward, towards the end, right? This was... Um, this is a woman who, who alleges that Clinton raped her in 1978, 1979, something, right? When he was, uh, when he was first governor of Arkansas. Um, and it's a number of fascinating things about the way that this was brought up in the show. Um, one is that the, the star people were like, let's just bury it in an appendix. You know, we, we don't want to muddy the waters here with this stuff. Um, and and it, it barely got any press at all at the time. Um, and it still is is not, I think, I still don't think it gets the consideration that accusation gets the consideration that it should because Juanita Broderick herself has turned into like a complete mega maniac. I don't know if you've ever like been to her page on Twitter, but she's nuts, you know? Um, and uh, I, I don't know, maybe if, if I was raped by the future president, like I, you know, I might carry a lifelong grudge too against him and his party. Um, and I think when, when they did this stunt in 2016 before the, was it before the second debate or the third debate? I can't remember where Clinton, you know, Clinton brought Paula Jones, Juanita Broderick, um and uh was it, Will, was it? Willie. Yeah, Willie. Willie, yeah. Willie. Yeah, they brought them to the debate. Um and everybody was like, uh, oh, this is crazy, you know, what a what an idiot. Um and you know, that that dark bastard, uh, you know, he, he has this like instinctive feel for like a like a political gut punch, even if it's like just a circus like atmosphere that has no place in, in a democracy. He kinda he knows how this stuff is gonna play. And so yeah, people were talking about that instead of the debate. Um, it made people go back and think like, oh, well, how could she be married to somebody that you know, those people say that he did this to these women? Um, and I think successfully severed the, in the public's mind, the Democratic Party's uh, alignment with like the Me Too movement and, and this like sort of reckoning um, of, of bad behavior by, by, by not just men, but mostly by men, right, uh, all over the years. And so the Democrats were not able to tell a clean story about that. Um, and it's because they're still, they still refuse to cast this guy out of the, out of the, you know, out of the cave with us. Um, it's like, why Bill Clinton should not be speaking at the DNC anymore. You know I mean? I don't, I don't care how charming he is. Um, I don't care what his approval ratings are. I don't care what his approval ratings were when he left office. He's a bad person, you know? Um, you know, maybe he's had his own personal reckoning with that and God bless him, you know, but, um, you know, wh whether you, whether Broadwick was telling the truth or not, I mean, he was a sleazeball. Um, so it's the, the spectrum is like, he was either a complete like sleazeball who, who lied to to a grand jury and should have resigned, or he's like a complete sleazeball rapist. And I, you know, either way, <laughs> either way, this is not a man that you want to have front and center at your convention because part of your political platform is getting people like this out of, out of office and out of politics and, and believing women, you know, I mean, it, Obviously, there's there'd be a process, right? But like, this is the this is what the party's position. This is what we want it to be, especially if Trump runs again. Um, and, and you want to have this issue living. Um, you want to be on the right side of history about it. Get away from the get away from him. Get away from the Clintons. You know, it's done. Your time is done. Bye bye. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I'm with you. Uh, and uh, which which. Which, with each passing convention, I, I feel stronger and stronger about it. Uh, don't put Clinton up. 
All right. Uh, we're pretty much out of time. And uh, perhaps the most important issue we haven't even touched on, uh, and that is um, the uh, raging pandemic. Uh, it's been with us now since March of 2020. It's pretty amazing that uh, uh, we're now almost three years into it. Uh, and you wrote a, a column for the the week that was, I think it was very truthful, but it was kind of bleak. Uh, and we can't vaccine our way out of this pandemic. Uh, I'm doing that from memory. I think it was the headline. I may have got the headline a little off there. Uh, but your general theme, why don't you just share it with people, uh, your thoughts uh, on this issue? Sure. Um, first of all, this was not how I wanted to learn the Greek alphabet. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of tech. You remember, I, I was having a great Thanksgiving, honestly. I, you know, had some wine, had a great meal, some friends, and I was going to bed. And I was like, let me just check Twitter one more time before I go to bed. And it was like, double mutant variant discovered. And I was like, Jesus Christ, God, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like, it just really ruined like the next three days. Um, and there was a lot of talk on the, you know, mostly on the left about like, well, this is happening because we didn't vaccinate Africa quickly enough. And I'm like, look, Obviously, we should we should be we should be doing a lot more to help vaccinate poor and more remote countries. Like that's just you know I feel like that's a given. Um, but the reality is like probably the most dangerous variant producing population is is, is right here at home, um, where there's you know something around like you know 60, 70 million people that are just never going to get the shot um, unless they are compelled to. And there's enough state governments that are not going to compel them to do it that there's always going to be some significant unvaccinated population here. Um, which means, you know, we're, we're, we're likely to live with variants of this virus, uh, I think, especially since the herd immunity threshold has been raised by Delta to like 90%. I just don't think that's realistic. Um, there's huge unvaccinated populations in India and China, um, you know, to taking percentages aside and just looking at raw numbers of people who are passing around the virus. Um, I think that we're going to be living in a world where we probably have to get a yearly shot. If you if you don't want to die of COVID, when and if most people most people don't want to die of COVID, but I, Republicans do, they're objectively co pro COVID. They want to get COVID. They want to give it to each other. They want to you know they want to die of it. I don't. I mean, God bless you know whatever whatever works for you all. Um, so it is it, it it was a it was a scary moment. I think some of the um, some of the fear is about immune escape. You know, like will this new variant overwhelm our immune defenses? And I think. We don't know. We're not going to know for a few more days whether that's true or not. Um, but I think that most people think that, you know, especially triple vaccinated people, if you got a booster, that you're still going to have pretty significant protection against this thing. Um, as they are rolling out, David Leonhardt had a good article in the New York Times today about the way that new COVID treatments might change the game here a little bit. And I, I do think that we're going to settle into a world that is kind of similar to the flu. Um, in the sense that, like, I, you know, you cannot really guarantee that you're not going to get the flu, right? Um, but if you get the flu shot, you are much, 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 much less likely to get a serious case of it. Um, I, my, my whole family had the flu right as COVID was hitting. Um, and we had all gotten the flu shot. And so we were all, we were like sick. It was a, it was a pain in the butt, but it wasn't, it wasn't death. It wasn't hospitalization. Um, and so I, I actually am optimistic, even in the medium term. That we're that we're a few months away. Once you can vaccinate little kids, we're we're a few months away from everyone that wants to be vaccinated can be vaccinated. Um, they will have they will have, you know, robust, not perfect protection against COVID. 
Um, and from there, it's just it's going to be this cat and mouse game with with variants where you know, we update the vaccines. We got to decide how long we up, it goes, how long does immunity last? Um, I think most sort of like responsible epidemiologists have been saying all along, it, we're not going to suddenly see a variant that's just like you can just blow past the, the vaccine defenses. It's going to be a, a gradual thing over time. The vaccine makers have these great platforms to, to rush vaccines out to us. Um, I think if we invest in the permanent architecture to make it possible to vaccinate everyone that wants to get a new shot fairly quickly, I think we can avoid a world in which these lockdowns are, are a persistent feature of our lives. So, um, yeah, it, it's the bleakness is that like there's just so many people that aren't going to do it. And it's and that's and that's just, we're going to have this like elevated mortality for, uh, you know, for a while right, indefinitely. Um, and it's just so sad to me that one of our political parties has has brainwashed its followers into into increasing their own risk of death and, and increasing their their danger to other people and increasing the risk of these variants. Um, and uh, that that's what feels bleak to me. Is I, I just I don't know how to explain that, and I don't know how I don't know how you fight it um, without forced vaccination, which we really can't do here. So that's where uh, we and, are. And to tie our themes together as we conclude. Uh, that party that uh, is uh, resisting all attempts uh, for the vaccine is employing the language of the pro-choice movement to justify it while they're in court trying to eradicate uh, abortion rights for women. It is truly uh, a great example of Republican uh, nimbleness, I guess you could say. Uh, say one thing on one issue <laughs> and then... Say the next thing in the other issue and get away with it. All right, David, that wasn't so bleak. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, it, uh, I feel a little bit better, actually, uh, what, you, what you said uh, made me feel a little bit better. All right, David Ferris, it's always a blast talking to you. Lord knows what the world will look like in two weeks when we talk again. Uh, but I know you, you and I will be here to discuss it, all right? Definitely. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, have, a, have a great rest of your, your week. And- We'll see you in a couple of weeks. We'll see what happens. Yes, we will indeed. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.